hey, welcome to another exciting uh, episode of the Fretboard Confessional. Uh, we are here, Cooper and Chris, to delight you with a special guest star who bullied his way in uh, because I guess you have some right and reason to be here, and that is Patrick Marr. Welcome, Patrick. Hello, hello. Very excited to be here. Um, I promise not to break any guitars on the podcast. Well, it'll be nice to know that you can do something other than break guitars and incite riots on the internet. Uh, if you don't know Patrick, you might know him from some of our videos where he absconded with a Yamaha straight out of Cooper's hands and then destroyed it to uh, utter acclaim online. A lot of people just wanted to like hunt you down. That was funny. Chris, we taped over the brand name on there so they wouldn't know. It was a Yamaha. Oh, man. Mm. It's not Yamaha's fault. It was UPS's fault. So what we what we then had to tell people for weeks is, hey, UPS broke that. There was no way to fix it. <laughs> so, it became a prop. So so thanks for joining us on the Guitar Podcast. Of course, of course. I also uh, want to shout out our Alamo Piano channel on our YouTube channel um, and make sure that if you're not subscribed there, please do. It's a lot of fun content. Me and Ted will talk about generational brands of pianos. We'll talk about how to find the right instrument, and we just have a lot more fun there than I feel like you and Cooper do. That's why you came on the pod. You wanted to plug your I'm, channel. I'm sorry. That was just the plug, but <laughs> but I am here. I'm excited to talk everything Dashboard Confessional. Our last episode we talked about, we're going to have uh, we're gonna have Ted on here at some point. He's going to be a good good person to have on Chris this. Chris and I won't guest. get any airtime on that Yeah, it would just be Ted. So, uh, so this week we're going to be talking about a few things. You're here because we're going to be talking about The Beatles. And uh, we couldn't keep you away. But we're also going to be talking about some stuff going on in the guitar industry, such as what we have termed uh, Tonewood Snake Oil. Is that a thing that's actually going on? And will we get canceled by manufacturers for talking about it? Uh, We're going to talk about what we're listening to and some cool stuff with new models that have come out, specifically from Fender and from Gibson, with some of their new acoustic stuff. But as we get into it, let's start off with the idea of Tonewood. And I'm curious, because you've come across this, whether or not you've known it. But the idea is this. There are manufacturers, big manufacturers, building guitars right now with Tonewoods, and we're enjoying these models, but what they're putting out there as far as what they're building the guitars with is less than honest. And here's how this came to my mind. This is is how this hit me. I was watching on Disney+, Plus, along with The Beatles, um, a new show that they have with Nat Geo. And it's something like Made in a Day. And they're going through and they're looking at factories and stuff that are making stuff. One of these factories is Gibson in Nashville. And it's cool. I always enjoy watching behind-the-scenes guitar factory videos. And they're making these Les Pauls and SGs and stuff. And the guy from the factory is rolling around this giant thing full of mahogany. And he says, we use more African mahogany than just about anybody else in the world making these guitars. And he says African mahogany like five times. And it just had me thinking, do they say it's African mahogany on their website? So I go to their website. No, they just say it's mahogany. And if you don't know, that's not the same thing. <laughs> African mahogany is not mahogany. It's a, that's like, it's a marketing term. It's a wood from Africa that kind of looks like mahogany. Some people call it sapele. Some people say African mahogany is different from sapele. But it's not Honduran mahogany. And so... There's two questions. Does it matter if you like the guitar? But is it fair for manufacturers like Gibson to, on their website, call it one thing, but it's actually something else? I mean, I think that's interesting because we've seen that a ton, and it's really just kind of up to the manufacturer to say, is this, you know, mahogany kind of becomes a blanket term just as other woods do. There's... Sapele, there's things I'm trying to think of some other examples. I mean, I've seen Sipo, mm-hmm. um, there's Akume. Well, there's that's... been a long time thing. So, here's the funny one that people don't often get you look back in like Gibson's history and you have Karina, yeah, right? That's that's fake. There's no such thing called Karina, it's actually Limba. And there's white Limba, there's black Limba. And at some point, someone at the marketing department at Gibson said, I don't like that word, let's call it Karina instead. And Martin does this. They come up with their own names for Tonewoods. Yeah. You know, but at least it's like their own name for it. It's not calling it something else. But they're not entirely out of the the uh, the clear here. You own a Martin. I do. What what Martin do you own, Patrick? 
It's the triple O fifteen. I was just thinking. I was like, at least they named it not Ligma instead of Limba. <laughs> but but just sorry, my brain went there. But so you have uh, a triple O fifteen. I have a triple O fifteen. Yes, M, and it's mahogany. Um, I think I don't know if it's African mahogany or regular <laughs> mahogany. So the M stands for mahogany. I hope. If you go, here's the thing. If you go to Martin's website right now and you pull up that model that you have or any of the fifteen series, it'll say the top back and sides is mahogany. Yeah. If you pull up a D18 or triple O18, it says the back and sides are genuine mahogany. Is this like genuine leather and like... <laughs> and pleather? Well, Bonded no, leather? <laughs> there's like a whole reason why they say genuine leather over just regular leather. And I, I, it's like a marketing ploy type thing. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. So which one does which one does the triple O15 have? I don't know. It's got See, that, mahogany. That's the thing. It's mahogany. I, here's my suspicion. My suspicion is it's not Honduran mahogany. Mm-hmm. Because they they have some reason for saying a D eighteen has it, but you still love that guitar. I do, I right? do. I, I I and I picked it not based on the wood type. I picked it on you know follow your ear a little bit. Right. But but it's uh yeah it's it's interesting. Yeah, I I think you know it's it's a good wood. Whatever they're using sounds good. We're huge fans. All of us are huge fans of that. We've talked about yeah. it in videos. We've done how great the fifteen series is. But it's not. And and there's two sides of this. So if you look at Taylor, they're going to the other extreme. So Honduran mahogany is from Honduras, but it's this particular species. Well, some of that's been grown in Fiji since like the Second World War or yeah. something. And so they're using Fijian mahogany, um, different manufacturers. And some of them, like Taylor, are calling it Fijian mahogany. Even though species-wise, it's the same, but it's kind of growing in a different environment. And so you have, on one side, very specific, accurate, this is what it is. And on the other side, just kind of obfuscation of what they're actually using. And it's become a thing. So in Gibson circles, after I saw this on Disney Plus and got th- got to thinking about it, uh, I went to the forums, you know, where there's all sorts of debate, and there has been for a while about this. And some people are saying, well, they've always used African mahogany. And others saying, no, 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 those old guitars were Honduran mahogany, and, and, and it matters. It's a big deal. It really matters. They sound different. They're different species. And then other people are like, well, there's receipts from back in the 50s that they were like, they, this was actually African mahogany or whatever, which is probably true. So if it was getting mixed up, doesn't matter. Like, if I, you go buy a, a standard Les Paul for $2,500 and it comes with African mahogany, fine. But what if you're buying a $6,500 this is exactly like a 59 Les Paul. And you're paying $6,500 to have it. I, I, I quote Shakespeare here, I think. What's, it, what's in a name, right? <laughs> a it's, rose by any other yeah, rose. <laughs> it, it's, uh, I mean, to me, it's, it's one of those things where, depending on the quantity purchased and the location of where it's purchased, it's like that has to do with the value more than like the quality of wood even sometimes. Yeah. And so you, you like trace it back enough and you know you can argue that you know this one sounds this much different but it's like at the end of the day if if it's a quality piece of wood and the manufacturers are are you know trying to be honest about the quality of the wood um is is much more important than kind of the name of the wood in my in my in my opinion but again it does come down to how do you market this well and taylor i think has done an excellent job of coming up with like, hey, let's go right to the source. Let's take pictures of the island. We cho- chopped this right. tree down because this person's name is Gary. Who's yeah. dragging this tree out of the forest. And and they've done an excellent job. And you know they they have their their magazine that uh, you know shows all that and tells this narrative. And and you know that's really what you're buying when you buy a Taylor. You know you get the full experience of okay, I know where my guitar woods came from. I know how much care was taken of this. And it's really kind of shot Taylor up to the top of most list when it comes when it comes to uh quality instruments in that price range um but it is interesting that some guitar manufacturers especially ones that predate taylor mm-hmm. are you know they they never paid attention to those details or they did loosely and at this point is, is it gonna come back to bite them you know yeah well I, cooper i'm curious your thoughts on this so one of the things that we know for true for sure going back to like the early days of the electric guitar is that it was two companies it's gibson and fender and there was a lot of experimentation going on yeah you know, so like Leo Fender was messing around with mahogany and ash and alder and pine. And evidently sassafras was Eric Johnson's like prized 57 strat was actually sassafras underneath there. So they're trying different things. And there was not 
the internet and people like hounding them of how things are being built. They're just grabbing these guitars, they're great guitars, and they're playing them. And I think a lot of that was going on with with Gibson as well. Mm-hmm. Like we're trying this wood, and maybe some of it's Honduran, and maybe some of it's you know African mahogany or sapele or whatever. It just it looks around the same. It's about the same weight. Looks like you know similar structure. So have we kind of lost it a little bit in the context of, to your point, appreciating what they were doing at the start of building versus getting maybe lost in the weeds, missing the forest for the trees right now? I mean, you think about like how many people ask us questions all the time because you really can't control what any random person says on the internet. So um, there's plenty of people that ask, and have asked me recently, should I buy this um, this fender, the pine one or the ash one or the mm-hmm. alder one? And they're solid body electric guitars. And I say very straight up that I don't think there's much of a difference. If you, you know, there's the whole thing with pine replacing ash with these transparent finishes and everything. Like at the end of the day, you're getting, you know, the pickups are going <laughs> to dictate the sound. And I think the same thing this is probably more of a controversial one when it comes to if somebody's getting Palfero versus Rosewood Mm -hmm. or even Maple versus Rosewood on a fretboard. I'm like, these things are going to impact your tone very little. I think that the big conversation comes in. The main one to me is Mahogany versus Rosewood on the back and sides of an acoustic guitar. That'll change your tone drastically. And I think Mahogany-like things will sound like Mahogany and Rosewood-like things. But... I do kind of appreciate how Taylor, when it comes to alternatives, Mm -hmm. really leans into it. I mean, they've got Urban Ash. They've got Eucalyptus on some guitars, you know, for the fretboards. They get behind them. They tell you exactly what you're getting. Versus something like Martin, you know, 16 series, you'll get Granadillo and you'll get Cirrus and stuff like that where... They're not doing a ton to educate the buyer on like what is what really is this, and people kind of look at it and they guess based on the coloring. Oh, this is probably just like so and so, you know. But I do think that people get hung up on it. It's got to be by the sound, and I do think that. I mean, you think about the Karina thing. I mean, mm-hmm. we were at Guitarlington. We saw those custom shops with Karina Explorers and V's, and it was like. Twenty nine thousand yeah. dollars, you know. Well, and it's a real wood. It's just yeah. the name's made up, and it, it's still good. It's really you know? good, but so it's like whether you wow, call it Limba yeah. or Karina, it's it's great. Is it worth twenty nine grand or Limba or Limba Black Limba? Um, but uh, I, I think it's just not to steer this back to pianos. But uh, it, <laughs> when you were talking about early guitar manufacturing and the creativity behind, like, hey, let's try this, let's try this. On the soundboard of a guitar is, is similar to the soundboard or the soundboard of an acoustic instrument. Sure. It's got a spruce top. Um, the piano has a spruce soundboard. But in early days, you'll see they tried mahogany. They tried other woods mm-hmm. there on the soundboard. Um, and ultimately, spruce went out and every piano is now made with spruce unless it's some limited edition crazy, you know, they'll, they'll try carbon fiber and stuff sometimes. But, you know, sure. um, but it's just it's interesting that sometimes in the acoustic world, usually the best tone would will win out. And I think we've seen that in guitars when it comes to spruce and rosewood. That's kind of the classic combination of woods. And usually people add on after that. They're like, oh, I need my mahogany. Right. I need my, I need koa. I need these things. Um, and then the, in the electric world, it, it seems like uh, people put a lot of value on the woods um, because there's so much value in the acoustic side of it. And, and, it's, and it's like, hey, let's, you know, it, if it means this much here, it probably means this much here. And it's just another way to, to, differentiate between these models and you know this one's going to be more valuable or it's going to sound better in the long run um but it's it's interesting i think on electrics it matters but it matters less than mm-hmm, it does on yeah. an acoustic and it's interesting to look at how manufacturers treat it because then you get an understanding of what their actual opinion on it is so you mentioned fender not able to have ash so they're replacing it with pine on the finishes that are transparent where you would see the grain and when they've had American models that were either alder or ash, the determination of that was the finish. If the finish was transparent and you were going to see the grain, it was going to be ash and not alder back in, you know, when they were using it. And, and so that's not a decision based upon the sound of the guitar. Mm-hmm. It's a decision based upon the aesthetics of it. And so I think, you know, 
back when these things were being made and decisions were being made, it came down to like the weight, the workability, the comfort, and yeah, the tone. But I think that when it comes to electrics, that was kind of one of the last things. Um, there's a story that the reason Les Pauls have a maple cap that got painted gold was they realized they liked the sound better, sandwiching those two things together. And they sound different. If you pick up a 57 yeah. Custom that's all mahogany, it sounds different. And that's just experimentation. And, and now what's happened is it's been locked into tradition. But on the other side, you mentioned Taylor like leaning into exotics, which I think is cool. But what I, what I find is that there's a lot of consumers that are buying exotics based upon only aesthetics, even in acoustic yeah. instruments. And that's, to me, not what... If it's an acoustic instrument, it's going to matter more. And not all wild you know, exciting looking exotic grain is a great tone wood. Yeah. You know, I think about too, like there are certain companies say Gibson in a Nat Geo episode that really hold fast to like, this is how we've always done it. This is what we do. And this year we're seeing that a lot of people's, this is how we already always did it. Isn't so important when supply chains get constrained yeah. and you can't get rosewood and you can't, you know. So I think about ash. Everybody loved the ash on a transparent, you know, natural Telecaster or Butterscotch yeah, like Blonde Telly or something. Telly, yeah. And, you know, you go into the lore of this instrument, you start falling in love with this is why they did it, this is why it's great. And then they're like, oh, we can't get that anymore, but pine's just as good. And it's like, well, then why'd you tell me for all those years that? It had to be ash. And uh, I think it's going to be crazy the amount of maple neck, maple fretboard fenders that we've gotten in this year far exceeds, especially in the back end of this year, exceeds the rosewood fretboards. Yeah. And we kind of talked about this when we were just, you know, brainstorming th how this topic can, what it can lead to. Um, like how long does something have to, obstruct the supply chain before it becomes like what this era of guitarists know and you know get used to so i mean you think about in the past you know instruments that people had access to became the defining instruments of that era yeah. how long are we gonna see a shortage of rosewood and stop getting 414s and 814s and 914s in that people start falling in love with mahogany back tailors or mm -hmm. oven call or urban ash or koa maple whatever you know i think that really just what's available ends up dictating the entire group of people that purchase what's available at that time and that they become known for those things and it's a really interesting thing that i wish we could track to see the times in history you know how that affected musicians. What's that cool epiphone that john lennon's playing <laughs> casino the casino mm -hmm. it's like not thought of being like an amazing, incredible electric guitar, but you know, there's John Lennon can afford, can bring in any instrument he wants. He has this sanded down casino, and it's you know, it's what you have access to. It's what you what yeah. uh, what's around, and and I've seen with you know, beginning musicians who are just entering the you know the world, the people who you know kids are listening to on the radio or you know on Apple Music and Spotify now, but. Uh, they're playing with what they can afford. And, you know, a lot of times the, these really expensive guitars are not even like an option because they're, they're excessively expensive sometimes for a beginner and, and they play on, you know, whatever, whatever they have. And, and it's like, it's cool. Sometimes it's very retro or, you know, you see a throwback or you see something that's like, Oh, that, I didn't know this Ibanez Geo can do this. I heard uh, talking about accessibility. I think it happens for the builders too. And you talk about history and what's available and going back. Um, I forget who it was, but I remember hearing someone who was a builder talking about Stradivari violins, and he made them with, you know, what a violin's known to be made with. It's spruce top, and it, it's a carved spruce top, and it's maple back and sides, mm. and that's become what every orchestral instrument is, and archtop guitars, and mandolins for a reason. It works real well. But that's what was around him. Yeah. That's literally, if he walked out into the forest and cut down trees, that's what he had available to build with. And I heard Bob Taylor say something very interesting about Tonewoods because, I mean, they're, they're building with what they're calling urban ash, but they've also come out and said, this is shamal ash. And this is literally like trees planted around L.A. It's just stuff that's like has to get removed because it's messing up a sidewalk 
but it was planted in the 70s, and it's just it's just a tree. It's just a normal tree people have walked by who would never have looked at it as something that you'd build an instrument out of. Yeah. And he said something really interesting. He said, there's actually a lot of really good tone woods out there. There's a lot of really great things that you could build a guitar or an instrument with. The problem is access. Like, can you get enough of it? So they'll get approached with like, hey, we have this cool wood you could build a guitar out of. And they check it out and they're like, this really does make a great guitar. How much of this can I get? Oh, we have enough for you to make 20 guitars. We're like, well, yeah. that's not going to work. You know. Ever heard of a Fall Limited? Yeah. <laughs> um, Rainforest, yeah, exactly. here we come. I just like, I, I think about it like when, so when maybe Chris is like Gary's age and when we're Chris's age. Uh, I, wow. I think that like you think about Taylor and, you know, they're an old company. They're not as old as Martin, but they're, right. you know, they're a veteran company at this point. I think when we look at like new artists now and when we're, you know, 20 years down the line, 30 years down the line, I bet we'll see a lot of young people from this time making lasting music with a GS Mini more so than a K24, which is a shame because K24 is like a, you know, legacy instrument that will be, you know, that's a classic, modern classic, but you think about the accessibility thing, like everybody's got a GS Mini that can afford one and they get one and it becomes everybody's like favorite little guitar to have. And same thing with probably classic vibes and, you know, stuff that's at that entry level. And at that point, like the tone wood becomes less part of the conversation and just like the unique voice of that instrument that's accessible to people. Um, you know, it's just wild. And I know that we're, we got to talk about Beatles, but you think about even like late sixties, you know, people like Jim, Jimi Hendrix, makes that right-handed switch to lefty strat so famous as just what was available. He yeah. had to make it work, you know, if he had been able to get a left-handed strat for his first guitar, you know. What if I had a left-handed strat? Yeah. Totally different sound, though. You know, it's crazy. But uh, what do you guys think about, speaking of which, we got a nice soundproof studio in here. We got some <laughs> road sounds, and we're going to get a it's, funeral it's coming by a little bit. Life. So, like, if you could... Uh, go back to the mid '60s and get your hands on any instrument with your current money in your bank account, but it would be at the price of you know what they were back then. Would you unbox a new Fender Rhodes, or would you be getting yourself a Casino? What would you be grabbing? Yeah, so let's let's. It's a great segue into the Beatles <laughs> because that freaked me out. And and let's talk about the Casino. Here's what I loved about the Beatles as we talk about their new instruments. Because Get Back's been amazing. And one of the most interesting points for me was watching them unbox brand new stuff that is now legendary and vintage. But I also love that they, like, Paul had no idea how his bass worked. Yeah. Or his amp worked. You know, to your point, it's like, John's like, I, I've got a casino, you know. <laughs> but had no idea. Like, he figured out how to take the pick guard off, but, you know. They were more interested in making music and liking the instrument just for what it is than getting so bogged down in the details that people do like we were just talking about, which is super refreshing. Yeah. Um, so we're going to get into it. But as we get into it, first question off the bat that I have for both of you. Most shocking guitar-related moment of the documentary for you? I don't know. Pat, what do you got on that? Uh, I don't know if it's most shocking, but like one of my favorite parts to the, to the casino um, was John Lennon, and they tell him from the booth, they're like, turn the bass down on it a little bit, and he just gets super sad because he has to turn down the bass on it because he's like, I don't remember what song they're playing, yeah. but it's just not as like present anymore, and he's like making this sad face by the end. He's like, it sounded better with the bass. Like, don't they tell him to put it back in? Yeah, he's like, then put it back. He's like, oh, he's just uh. like, he's just like, it was it was that moment where he was like. He was dialed in on the sound that he really loved. And, and that's the thing. They, they come back every day and they talk about, like, what's well, impossible to get the exact same song we had or sound we had yesterday. Like, you know, we'll try, but, like, we're, we're, they're all doing it right there ad lib and they're yeah. recording it. And, um, uh, I mean, there, there was just so many parts where it's when you see George Harrison, you know, almost with no confidence be like just you know get Clapton to come do it. Like, like it's just like you're like, what? Like, you're George Harrison. You're, you're, better than Clapton I mean but it's uh it's 
it's so incredible. The whole entire thing from start to finish was there's great guitar moments. I loved related to that moment when later Lennon was complaining about not being able to hear. And he's coming up with these ideas of like, we could just hang speakers from the ceiling, you know, and have them marked down because the, the engineers are kind of saying, you know, we don't have big speakers in here because your mics and the way you're set up and it'll feed back. And, and he finally says like, we should at least have speakers big, as big as a bass amp, hey, Paul? <laughs> you know? I think that the, one of the craziest parts to me is the difference in the level of knowledge of music theory and also just like technical things, um, you know, watching them help each other out and they all have a varying degree of understanding of like how these chords are working and wh- why things work together. It makes you really appreciate. I mean, they've been at this point playing together for the better part of the decade, you know, and they still are like kind of figuring things out as they go. And uh, I think the best part for me was when Billy Preston came in. Mm-hmm. That was the part, like, when I went over to Pat's house and I hadn't watched any of it yet. <clears throat> and he's like, no, no, you just got to watch this. And pushed it forward to when they had Billy Preston come in. And he just, like, knows what to do immediately. Yeah. And I didn't even notice on that record how many of the songs were, like, those were my favorite parts, were, like, the key parts, you know? And, like, like Fender Rhodes. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, and just his, like, messing around as he's learning the songs become the parts that... Like on "Don't Let Me Down," yeah. the Rhodes parts. It's like yeah. so what that, that's I guitar hear. related, right? Like a Fender Rhodes. So not but, to not to move it to a keyboard direction, <laughs> but but they unbox that Fender Rhodes. They're like pulling the plastic off of it. The Fender Rhodes, every underneath the pieces of of reed or tine, it's uh, it's a guitar pickup under each one yeah. of them, um, and so right yeah. there, it, guitar it, related. It was incredible to see them use what was like brand new technology for them at the time. Yeah. To see uh, them rolling in that eight track that George was lending them in mm-hmm. order to use for the recording. Gary pointed out to me that he owned one of those or owns one of those still, uh, which is how old Gary is. Um, but yeah, it was great. It's, there were several moments, though, that like I remember like eyebrows raising, eyes getting big. So I was falling in love watching George, the first parts of it, playing Lucy, his yeah. Les Paul. Which if, if do you know the history of that guitar, Pat? No. So that was initially owned by uh, the guitar player. I forget his name from the Everloving Spoonful. Uh, then it ended up with Rick Derringer. It was all beat up. Rick took it to Gibson when he was near there to have them refinish it. So it was a gold top that was beat up that became red, like the SGs that they were making at the time. And when we got it back. He didn't like it, so he sold it to a shop. Then Eric Clapton bought it, and then as legend goes. He gave it to George, and then somehow he ended up with George's wife. I don't know if that was part of the trade or <laughs> just. You know. I think so, Patty. <laughs> but but then you know so and he names it Lucy because it's red, and he named it after Lucille Ball. But that's one of the most famous Les Pauls, yeah, ever in existence. And you're watching him play it, and then you know, spoiler alert. I think it's the second episode. At some point, George isn't there. It's sitting up on the drum riser, and it falls. <laughs> And I'm just like, I'm looking at something that at auction would probably be, you know, a million bucks or something now. And it's just falling and kind of careening and banging against a bunch of stuff. And they just they just sit there and kind of look at it, wait for it to settle, and then continue on. It was pretty epic. Have you, um, have you watched the George Harrison documentary on HBO Max? Mm-hmm. Um, All Things what's Must it Pass? Called? No, it's uh, Living in the Material World. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, that... Like, I had watched that before any of Get Back, you know, because it came out several years ago. But that's another one that Pat was like, you got to watch this. And it gave me such an appreciation for him, even more so. All Things Must Pass is, like, an incredible album to begin with. But then hearing his story completely separate outside of the Beatles and his relationship with Eric Clapton. I've never been the biggest Eric Clapton fan ever, but, like, the mutual respect they had was pretty pretty insane. Um but so I've already been kind of on this George Harrison kick yeah. going into watching this and then hearing him play these ideas like I'm you mine and stuff. And they're like, what? <laughs> we're in a rock band, George. You know, it's yeah. like. No, John Lennon's like, we're in a rock band. Okay, keep your ballad, your oh waltz ballad. And like the chord structures that he's doing, yeah. he's like, it's such a like complex, cool idea. Like most of the stuff that he puts together. And then Paul just wants to have fun and make silly love songs, you know. Oof. It's pretty wild. 
So, you know, I, I'll say this. I think uh, I've seen a lot on the internet since Get Back came out about people feeling bad for George. They treat him like crap. Um, we don't ever know what's going on behind the scenes when they're, like, dismissive of his ideas, but I get the feeling, since it's both Paul and John, that it's kind of like conversations that have somewhat had been had before. Yeah. You know? So I think that was involved. And then you, you, and you feel bad when he just leaves. Like, I'm leaving the band and kind of the fallout that takes place from that. But it's... What became clear to me watching Get Back, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, is it, this didn't really show the end of the Beatles. It showed what was leading to the end of the Beatles. Um, it showed the struggles that you had four guys who effectively grew up together. I mean, from the time that they became adults together. Um, it showed very fallible musicians that were not the best musicians in the world, but together were kind of more than the sum of the parts. Yeah. You know? Um, and it also showed like what I identified with is I think if you've been in any band, you immediately understood the dynamics of what was going on, the tensions that took place. Like when you're disagreeing with someone that you're playing with creatively, the tension that that builds and also the, the self doubt, like George, <laughs> like I can't play this. You should get you know, Eric Clapton in here to play this, like how many musicians, it doesn't matter what level of success that you reach, you kind of have that insecurity about you. Yeah. Or just me. I don't know. No, for sure. No. I, and one of the things I took away from it, like the, uh, was their, their dedication to refinement and, and kind of how they would go and they would record the same song 10 to 20 times and then and none of them were with the purpose that this is going to be the album version. But then they would go back to the studio and they'd listen all together and they would point out to each other, oh, I like when you did that, I like when you did And then yeah. they all know exactly kind of what they want to do for the final take. And then they go try, they go take a stab at it again. Um, and they, it seemed like they were doing this process over and over again. And it's one of those things that I don't think a lot of bands do because they don't have access to a studio Um but it's almost like a thing you can take in your take into your life and be like, okay, if you do something, you know, we're we're here, we're we're a sales organization. Every every sales, every sale that happens, every interaction with a customer, if you go back and you know you see what you did well, what you did not well, and you kind of think of it as like a, a process of refinement, and you reflect, um, you know, the next time you do it, you can do it, you know, make sure you do it that much better or that you um, make people feel that much more welcome. And, and it's really, it's, it was just interesting to see this band that people hold as one of the greatest bands of all time because of what they were able to accomplish and record. Um, but really, you know, you see them all, you know, struggling with, is this right? Are we doing the right thing? It's going to become what, what it becomes because you know, that we, that's what we make. And so it's just like the whole, it was very, it was very Zen. <laughs> Um, but it, it was uh, it was very cool to see them kind of get together and uh, you know chip away at one of their goals was to you know write and record all this stuff and play it live yeah. and you know ultimately I don't think they accomplished what they wanted to but in the process of doing it they accomplished what they accomplished. I think Paul was satisfied the minute the cop showed up, mm -hmm. like when because you remember or like early on he's talking about these weird ideas of like let's play someplace that we're not allowed to play, you know. Let's, let's go, you know, storm Parliament and start playing. Like, he had these ideas that he wanted to be a little bit dangerous, you know? And then I see when they're on the rooftop performance, like, they're playing, they're getting into it. But the minute he turns around and he sees those cops, he gets the biggest grin on his face. And he starts dancing all goofy. Like, he was super excited that there was this little element of, like, you're not allowed to do this danger that was involved. He, he loved the spotlight. And that was the one thing, too, I, I took away was there was a... Uh... When they all got up on the on the rooftop to play live again for you know the first time in a very long time, Paul kind of turns it up to the next level, which was which was cool to see. You mm -hmm. know, he like he they had sounded one way in the studio, but when he got up there on the top of the roof, just he cranks it up to the next level. And I and everyone else is in, exceptionally great and what they're doing, but he too you know really feeds off the energy of that live performance. And I think that's kind of who he is. Paul McCartney just feeds off of you know, the performance aspect of it just as more than the rest of them, it seemed. One thing, Cooper, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. One thing that I take away from it as a musician is that there's this lesson in capturing something when you're playing together. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of the documentary, they, you know, Jackson rightly points out that they hadn't been performing anymore. 
you know, really from like a lot of the fallout in the media and, and just different things going on with their dynamics. And then of course, Brian's death, you know, they're just, they've been, they've kind of retreated to the studio and there they've just been multi-tracking, which mm-hmm. creates some really cool stuff. I mean, some fantastic albums were produced. Revolver is one of my favorite albums they've done and, and Eddie yeah. Rhodes. I think those are my two favorites, but it kind of reminds me of like watching the stuff from Muscle Shores. Like or Muscle Shoals, there's something about playing live together in a space and capturing that mm-hmm. versus a bunch of people playing parts and having a producer rather than the group kind of put it all together later. Yeah, and I think I think in music a lot of that's been lost. Some of the best recordings that I enjoy from musicians are done live. Um, and either recorded in concert or recorded in a live recording session together versus the isolated, easier to produce, but I think sanitized, multi-track way of recording an album. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like a cool thing where you can see the difference between more of like the art rock kind of thing versus just pure rock and roll or blues or, or jazz stuff where you got guys in the room just like playing off each other all looking at each other um you know i think pat feels the same way that it's a really cool ability to have you have stuff in your house you can plug everything in you can record layers over each other that's kind of how i've done a lot of stuff with tommy a good friend of ours going to the studio just me and him and we have every instrument we could want and a thousand pedals thousand you know pieces of outboard gear and plugins and you can just make whatever but it inevitably turns into, with all those tools, you can't really make simple stuff very, you know, very easily. It turns into things where it's like, I have every tool at my disposal. You start experimenting, and then you get something like, you know, tomorrow never knows, revolver kind of stuff, yeah. you know. And then on the opposite end, so a good example. I recorded a bunch of stuff with Tommy. We did it just like that. It, some of it got really weird and it was fun, you know, reverse sitars and stuff. And then after we finished that, I went to a studio in Austin with a friend of ours named Preston. And the engineer was like, uh, all right, we're going to be playing to tape and you got to have a perfect take. So practice it 10 times. And then when you're ready to start, let's go. And I had never played with the musicians before me, like wrote the song right there. And so we basically probably did it 15 or 20 times. And then it just clicked at one point and I had been doing the, you know, sit at home with all your guitars and your gear for a really long time. I hadn't had that experience in a bit. And so I was so intimidated thinking like, Oh, we're never going to be able to do this in a day, you know? Mm-hmm. But if you got good musicians, people that can like take cues off each other and make eye contact, then it becomes like more of a lightning in a bottle kind of thing, you know, where you're not working for six months on one song. Like you just got the good stuff done in a few hours and then you got something that you can tweak and you know shape the tone but all the magic comes from the performance which i think is such a cool thing that the beatles had examples of both of those as like really the pinnacle of the in-studio live recording and the pinnacle of like the art rock building a track um with you know crazy and then you know that inspires pet sounds and mm-hmm. uh, her Majesty's her Satanic Majesty's request, whatever the Rolling Stones tried to do that was never as good as the Beach Boys <laughs> or the Beatles, um, and you know, and then you get Let It Be stuff. I mean, it's such a different vibe. I always like grew up with going to my grandparents' house and they would put Let It Be on like the turntable and stuff, and it's just such a warm, like comforting sound. The tone of that record. Um, versus sometimes you know the really polished kind of strange sounds of you know magical mystery tour or sergeant peppers whatever but i want like the original let it be what do you like the phil specter let it be or the stripped down let it be i like let it be naked so much yeah it's so good um i mean just those that's what really broke up the beatles the recordings are so yeah before he was killing people he was killing (laughs) he broke up a lot of things yeah lives um but yeah the uh the let it be naked kind of remix the tracks are so much clearer you can hear everybody's voices in a very different way 
But then sometimes, you know, you listen to All Things Must Pass, wall of sound kind of stuff, and it's like a whole magic of its own. But I don't know. What, what are y'all's, what's y'all's favorite track on the album or uh, any track that they were working on in the documentary? Well, I, I've always loved Get Back. I, you know, I, I just, it, it's, it's such a great groove. And it was magical to me watching him write it, like come up with it on the spot. That was probably one of the most awesome moments of the documentary because it was so accidental. Like they're, they're, they're waiting around for John again, you know, and He's on that yam yam. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Dang. He was. And, uh, and, and yeah, and it just starts coming. And, you know, you I know you've written songs like that. I've written songs like that where you're just playing. And then in the midst of just playing around, something grabs your attention. Yeah. And you start to kind of build and develop it. And then it, that becomes Get Back. That was awesome. And it, it yeah. took me like, I don't know, it was like 10 seconds of him playing before I realized, oh, this is the first time he's ever playing this. It's yeah, crazy. It's pretty crazy. I mean, I... This wasn't like all of them together, but like seeing Paul at the piano play Golden Slumbers, Slumbers is like one of the coolest things I've ever seen because he's just like talking about it too. He's like, you know, it's like a lullaby. And it's like, that's always been one of my favorite songs. Um, but that whole medley at the end of Abbey Road where it's just like, and they play a couple of them yeah. uh, throughout uh, periodically and, and get back. But you can tell that they're trying to figure out that idea all together. Mm-hmm. But, but Rainy Lee's just sitting at that piano and it's, it's just always interesting to see him like, there's that. There's the guys like standing over him, just writing lyrics of everything they say, yeah. and then the next day they get the printout of everything that he's typed up. Like that's just, it's crazy. That's it's interesting that they see that there's such a value there that they've added this person to basically be in the, the scribe. Studio. Yeah, the scribe yeah. to be in the studio and be like, write everything that we said. This was take three. You said these words because you know once you say it and forget it, it's gone. Especially if you're in that like you know that kind of flow state of like writing the song. And, and uh, you know, he's, he's figuring out which version he likes. And, you know, you forget good stuff and you you gravitate towards better stuff sometimes. But, you know, you, who knows what you lose? And I think they really felt that. And that's why they were so, like, keep it on the tape. Like, you know, unless we're running out of tape. You yeah. know, I think we bought enough tape. I think yeah. we're the Beatles. We can afford enough tape to record all of this. You know, it's that's kind of their, their, uh, their goal. And it's cool that we live in the age of our iPhones yeah. having voice memos and yeah. me and Cooper both have like 600 <laughs> voice memos of just Pat like texted me at like six in the morning on a Monday. He's like, I wrote 10 songs this morning. Check them out. And they're like finished <laughs> songs. He's like, I just had some coffee this morning. I had some ideas. Um, too much coffee. Too much. Have y'all seen that old SNL bit with Chris Farley interviewing Paul McCartney? Uh, I vaguely remember that. He I says know. like, he's talking about at the end of that medley when uh, in the end the love you take is equal to the love you make. And he's like, hey, hey Paul, uh, I had a question. Um, you know when you said in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make? And he's like, mm-hmm. And he's like, is that true? <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. Yeah, so it was fantastic. You know, I felt bad for Paul. One of the things that became clear in the documentary is the 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 impact that losing Brian had on them. You know, they didn't have that father figure. and And he literally says, like, he's having to fill this role and he doesn't like it. And they have that kind of secret recording of him and John. He's saying to John, like you used to be kind of the guy in charge other than the Brian. And you're not really doing that anymore. And I don't feel comfortable doing it, but somebody needs to do that. And that was, that hung over everything as they were late and they didn't have direction. And you had these guys pulling at them with all these opinions, like their produce the documentary producer. I think we should do this or we should go here. And, and the band finally having to like, even surrounded by these guys who are telling, trying to tell them their opinions, John and Paul saying, nobody should be able to tell us what to do. We need to decide what to do. And that was, I think the tension that eventually drew them apart. I think it was cool. You saw like when they were in the, at the beginning, they were at that sound studio, nothing was working. George leaves. Like there's not a lot happening. The minute they're in their space, Things start improving. Then to your point, Cooper, Billy Preston walks in and boom, there's mm-hmm. the fifth Beatle. Mm-hmm. And I love that they even had the discussion like, You're in the should band. we have a, a fifth Beatle? And Paul docks it down for one reason, having to deal with people's personality. So it, it like it rears its head again of Paul having feeling this pressure of like, we have to have this business part of it going. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they don't show it in the documentary, but they do show 
John and George talking about Alan Klein coming in as their manager, mm-hmm. and he's eventually the reason that everything fell apart. Yeah. If you know their history. Well, yeah. I, it's and uh, to me, I, I this was like motivational a little bit, but it was this is the greatest band of all times, arguably. You know, the Beatles here, and it seemed like there was so much dysfunction that them as a group, as creative as they are, as much as they bring to the table, it seems like they couldn't get anything down. And it seemed like things could have fallen apart right then because no one wanted to be an adult and actually execute what they were saying they wanted to do. Um, and it almost, you know, it almost just, well, why are we doing this? You know? Yeah. Um, and so it's almost amazing that anything was released, but like how easily it could have just been, the, they could have just walked away and been like, okay, you know, we're not, and it, it, I think it was because Epstein, you know, it was, he was the one kind of making them do things, you know, the dad figure saying, Hey, you right. have to do this. You know, you got to finish this project, this, um, these songs, you got to finish it. When they didn't have that, it's amazing. It's amazing that they released anything at all, you know, and, and as talented as they are, they could have just let it be. Well, and what could have also been, uh, at one point, George talks about, I'll just record my stuff on my own and then I'll also do Beatles stuff. Like there was this discussion. They're all kind of eventually going their own way as individual artists, but that possibility of staying together was there. And what really drives me crazy all the time, I was telling Cooper, this is, you know, as good as Abbey Road was, that was, that was their last recording. Well, a lot, a lot of people think "Let It Be" was the end, but Abbey Road was oh, recorded after. Mm-hmm. That was really the last thing, and it was so good. Like that last thing they did was that good. Yeah. What could have been? It was their you best. Know, down, coming down the pipe. I don't think so. It was their best. What What's next on the list? Now, I, for me, it's Abbey Road and then Revolver. I love Abbey Road. Abbey Road. Sergeant Pepper. Ooh. Dude, so, the first like five albums are criminally underrated too. No, I've been great. listening to they're Hard great. Day's Night they're like great. nobody's business. But it's just like another level. What's the modern day Beatles? Radiohead. Radiohead. Every <laughs> album's perfect and every album's different. The Jonas Brothers. They started as a pop band. <laughs> mm-hmm. People, you know, pigeonhole them to creep, especially the the people <laughs> who don't know, and then they just like became studio. Studio buffs. Great know. Radiohead content on another podcast that I'll plug for NPR, which is uh, Throughline. Okay. They did a recent one called History Is Over. They're talking about specific moments in time, and they interviewed uh, they interviewed Tom and talked about Radiohead's albums. And that's awesome. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. I, I, I sent guy. it to Zach because I know he loves Radiohead. So send it to me. I love Radiohead. Well, I'll send it to we you. Sorry, love, we, like, we I just told you about Radiohead. it. So. Oh, that's true. But I, so I, I'll tell you one last thing that hit me in regards to. Uh, get back and it wasn't very clear but i started thinking to myself how old are these guys yeah you know and they were all basically turning 30 except for george yeah who is like 25 which if you think about it they've been playing together for a decade so the guy was 15 years old you know and it's no wonder he's sitting there kind of questioning how good of a guitar player he is or has an insecurity like He's a, kid. he's a young I remember so what young. being 25 was like yesterday <laughs> from yesterday dude today to yesterday from but yeah I, th- I thought that was crazy to see the the level of success that yeah. they've reached uh, but also the youth and and it seems daunting I, I think of myself at 25 trying to deal with the things that they were dealing with or even 29 trying to like handle licensing and copyrights and royalties and recording yeah. and and the tax man and and the tax man. I mean, you think about it, dude. Bieber was working with Usher when he was like nine. Oof. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's basically the modern-day Beatles. The modern-day Beatles in one person. And he quit society. He didn't quit the band. (laughs) So, awesome. I mean, I thought Get Back was great, but that brings us to the next question is, what are you listening to? So we're going to try every week to talk about what we're listening to, and I have eclectic music tastes, but other than Wilco, Pat, what are you listening to? I actually haven't listened to Wilco in a minute. Um, it's a great question. Uh, apparently, Beach House came out with a new album. That's something that I'm going to be giving a listen to. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at Pat's most recently listened to, and I guess we both listen to the same exact stuff every day. I know. I, I actually like, got back into back into Tom Waits recently, and it was his birthday yesterday. I didn't know that. Dang, Tom cool. Waits. Tom Waits. Uh, but our, our girl Phoebe Bridgers did a Tom Waits cover. Mm-hmm. Very good. It's called uh, Day After Tomorrow. Um, that's something that I will, I will shout out. Um, I don't know. There's 
there's been uh, some good stuff. been listening to Tennis a lot. That's some good stuff. The song Needs Your Love by Tennis is one of the, the coolest production sounding, I guess, songs that's come out in a, in a minute. Um, looking forward to the new Spoon album coming out. Uh, but yeah. You have some inside information on that new Spoon album? I don't. I don't. But he's, a, he's an Austin native and has checked out our Austin piano store recently. So we did see him in there. Um, but yeah, excited to listen to that new Spoon album. I'm excited. He's actually playing. He's like the supporting band for Wilco on their, uh, what is that? The, that getaway trip. They ha- Yeah, they have like a resort concert festival Wilco does now. It's like you go to Mexico, you stay in a resort <laughs> for like three days and they play every single night. Yeah, That sounds uh, like the least Wilco thing I know. I've ever heard. It's like, super, I mean, besides the Acoustasonic Wilco. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing up is uh, Rage Against the Machine will be doing a sponsored cruise. Yeah, yeah. they're doing a Viking Carnival. cruise. Yeah. <laughs> they're doing a Viking cruise. Um, but yeah, but Spoon is the supporting act too that's also playing two. I think Britt Daniels is doing one by himself one night and then Spoon is playing the other night. But um but yeah, I'm I'm doing kind of like the 2021 year recap, I guess, is what is on everybody's mind. Um, Spotify and Apple Music did their their top, and I took a I took a, a deep dive into Pink Floyd this year, which I had not really done before, which was mm-hmm. you know um, very entertaining. Of course, the Beatles, Radiohead, um, Built to Spill was on my top listens. Um, but yeah, you know, on runs is, is when I really dig into some albums, you know. You can get sometimes through a whole album on a on a long run and it's and it's uh, your heart rate's up, you know, you're in the one thirties and uh it just it, it it flows well with the music when you're listening to like some sometimes high BPM music. Um so yeah, just a little bit of everything. How about you, Cooper? Other than everything he's listening to. Everything that Pat's listening to, um, I got my Spotify wrapped because I'm a loser that cares about that kind of stuff. But uh, <laughs> my top listened to band by far for 2021 was Steely Dan. All right. Uh, a lot of Steely Dan. I mean, Beatles were up there a lot. Um, I mean, Mitski's put out some great singles recently. I've been really digging those. Um, there's something about, like, Asia by Steely Dan that's been like blowing my mind a lot for the last few months. So that's like a big one for me. Deacon Blues for sure. Um, I don't know. What about you, dude? So I've been listening to this artist I found called uh, named John Mark Pantana. It's kind of a indie folk rock type vibe. Pretty cool. Some of the songs sound very ethereal. Some of it's very stripped down. Uh, so I like that a lot. I've been having fun with my son, Lucas, uh, kind of discovering some music, uh, getting into, like, just, like, who are insane musicians that you like to listen to? So I introduced him to Snarky Puppy. Nice. And we had a great time kind of going through a bunch of different albums from them. Uh, then we went on this kick with Chris Lee and, and and Wolfpack and, you know, stuff like that. And uh, it's it's pretty cool sharing that with the kids and just, like, geeking out about insane musicians playing together. Yeah. You know? Um so yeah, that's been a lot of fun. Crazy. Um, so yeah, that's been the biggest stuff. Uh, I was listening to. I came across old uh, Steel Drivers, yeah, which was dude. like Chris Stapleton before anyone who knew who Chris Stapleton was. They got and, some great stuff. Oh man. man, yeah, that first album was incredible. Yeah. So uh, listening to Peacemaker the other day, and what's that song? Uh, good corn liquor, or yeah. something like that. Man, yeah. that's such a good song. His voice incredible yeah absolutely yeah so that's been kind of what's on been on my playlist lately and then uh you know trying to prep for some of our accordion marketing so some tejano polka thrown in there some cajunto music um i made a joke the other day that accordion marketing should come with hazard pay so (laughs) (laughs) man i uh accordions dude they're like such an important thing to us here something that you know at the wrong time of day it hurts my soul <laughs> Accordions are great Accordions are, this are, has are been fantastic a pretty good album. what album's that uh, it's called it's by angela aguilar i'm gonna say it like that um <laughs> but uh, Angela, dude uh mexicana enormorada <laughs> which is hard to say but angela aguilar it's her new 2021 album cool accordions going she's got a, a wonderful voice but i just heard it the other day and i was like this is 
that's been my most recent add to my Dang. Apple Music. The other thing that I found what going through the most listened to was Gregory Allen Isakov. Yeah, that's one of my most most listened to. Uh, particularly the album he did with uh, I forget which symphony it was. It was like some festival symphony. It's like it's it's full and stripped down at the same time. Yeah, and his vocals are like haunting. I just he's a great song. Yeah, it's great. So I know that to wrap up, you wanted to talk a little bit about some weird guitars with weird holes in them. <laughs> there, that's I, a great way of saying it. I know you want to talk about weird polarizing. It's guitars with guitars. holes in in the wrong places. Like a which te- one? <laughs> <laughs> so there's been new stuff that's come out recently that we want to talk about. One of them is Fender expanding their acoustic line, and there's those are polarizing guitars. People either are like, okay, I don't think anyone loves the way they look. People are either no. like are okay enough with the way they look, or they detest the way they look. But a Telecaster with like a donut hole in the middle <laughs> just looks a little weird. And then the other ones that have holes that seemingly are very polarizing for people are the new Gibson Generation guitars. Oh, yeah. They're holarizing, dude. <laughs> wow. Yeah. These are I, holy guitars. I think, I mean, to cut to the chase here, if I had to pick one, I'd go for a generation. Um, but I got to appreciate, kind of like we talked about on the channel, the the streamlinification of the Acoustasonic line. They stripped it down to the, the essential voices. What you really need, yeah. The only thing is, if I had to pick, you know, between an American telly and a, the player telly, I'd go for the Jazzmaster, but um, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, um, no. I for the American line, I think the Jazzmaster is a pretty cool guitar, and I do think that they, you know, it's not unorthodox anymore. But the traditionally unorthodox offset shape of the Jazzmaster fits the weirdness of that guitar the best. Um, so I do like that one. I like the pickup switching stuff, but. I do think it's worth talking about, like I said, I I would pick a generation, um, how, you know, one small YouTube video can change the world and the perception of, you know, the entire market's view of these guitars with biases built in and people seemingly kind of disregarding that. But, uh, uh, and we don't have to go into more detail than that. If you know, you know, on the generation collection, but... Um, yeah, I don't know, Pat. Have you gotten to play any of those Generation Gibsons? I haven't. I've just seen them. You've they, seen them. They look interesting. Um, do they sell, what? What is the? What's the marketing push on it? What? Why is the hole different? It's basically like a speaker in your face. I yeah. Mean, oh, okay. They're, you know, they're calling it the player yeah. port. Now, there's other guitars that have had it. Gibson says that they found plans from the '60s that had a player port. And they were made from African mahogany. Actually, I don't know if you heard that one. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> with Karina Inlay, yeah. so yeah, so they they found plans in the '60s. Although the one, the one, I think the plan for the '60s had the hole in a different spot, like on the lower bout, which really doesn't make that much sense because your arm would be covering it, or you'd be shooting it to your armpit or something. But so you know, they took that inspiration and justification, I guess, to do what some other people yeah. have done, and they relaunched the, because the Generation Collection is not new. They had the Generation Studio and Standard. The G45. Yeah. So they've just relaunched it with a broader line from an L00, G45, G Rider, which is a square body cutaway dreadnought. I don't know why they called it the G Rider, but I guess. I mean, you could call it the G Hummingbird um, or the G Dove. The, the G- songwriter has a cutaway, or right? The G Dub. Uh, no, I mean, some. I don't know, dude. G Rider. That's cool. G Rider's cool. That's like you're a G and you're like riding. And then the G200. Which is their jumbo G two hundred. That's but, yeah. But they're all value. I mean, they're all made in Nashville. They're all solid wood. Two out of the four come with pickups, and they go from about a thousand bucks to two thousand bucks, depending upon the most expensive is the jumbo. Yeah, and what? Only two of them have pickups, right? The yeah, the Ryder and the jumbo. Can you buy one at the Gibson factory store? I'm sure the Gibson garage, nicely supplied by their craftery. Is uh is well stocked. It's like you know, you go to the downtown location of Alamo Music, but we also got the warehouse down there. So okay. you're like you know, um, it's like you got the the garage, but you also got the. But factory. you don't have to go to the garage because if there's anything that we have from Gibson, they have they have planned for this release well, and we have a good supply of that. Yeah. Unlike okay. most of their other models that they can't seem to get out the door. But they just go Except straight to, to the, the garage. garage. It goes right? straight to the garage. Well, yeah. I was in Nashville recently, and uh, Did I was. You see the conveyor. 
I was trying to like park downtown and like these guys like got in my way and like blocked off the road and then like squatted and then like took a picture of like they were they were like a professional camera crew like taking pictures of the garage. It was, just, Geo, it was just dude. like I was like, this is great, man. I love I love this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, the I thing have is, opinions. So. <laughs> the but thing it like is, ruined my day. <laughs> I, mean, I heard it's, it's awesome. Easy to do in Nashville. I'll say this: I've heard from people who've been there that the Gibson Garage is awesome. It's amazing. Well, if you if you just keep walking, you get to like the Frisk Art Museum, and like that's a way better place, I think. I totally do they have any guitars that. in there? No, but you'll have a better time. <laughs> so, so you got to stop and Frisk. Yeah, you know. But to, but to summarize, it, they're good guitars. There's been some comments on the internet, and I think it. I, here's my opinion: I think the the buying public that wants a twelve hundred dollar Gibson doesn't care what somebody else's opinion is on it, honestly. Yeah. I think you know, that, that demographic isn't in the forums, and they're just not looking for the most part. So I might be wrong, but that's my opinion, and I think it'll do well. And I think the player Acoustasonic they've come out with will do well. And I think when they do the player Stratocaster, it probably won't do as well because that's just kind of weird. And when they do a player Jazzmaster, it'll probably do the best because yeah. it fits well. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder, like, where else is Fender going to go with this? Are we going to see a Squire version? Is it going to have three sounds only? Like, how uh, far will they uh, take one this technology? Sound, uh, one sound. One sound. A player's got three sounds. So, I mean, I guess you got six because it's blend knob, you know. But uh, the thing is with those, uh, I'd love to be in meetings across the board with any of these brands and figure out how they decide what their finishes are going to be for a certain line. Uh, Fender really kind of through a wrench in the things with the player plus line with all those finishes cosmic jade silver smoke tequila sunrise but then with the what we're talking about the player acoustasonics you know you they went with classics so you mm. got natural um no, no you got the black one or charcoal whatever it is the three-tone sunburst butterscotch blonde and then what's the fourth one it's not a three-tone sunburst it's like a, a two-tone, two-tone yeah yeah uh yeah i don't remember what the, the thing is, is I, it might be a natural but the butterscotch blonde I, I don't think they'd have those two i'm trying to remember what it would be maybe it's a white one yeah um but butterscotch blonde is so different from any other butterscotch blonde i've ever seen in my life so it's like they're down to make a silver burst and a mercury burst and like give different names to these but when then when the colors are actually different it's the same name i'm like What's going on here? All right. Something tells me it's the same paint color, and it's something to do with the way that it's being done. It's being sprayed on spruce, and it doesn't have any finish on top. It's a satin finish. Yeah. There's no gloss, and I think that's why it looks so alarmingly different. They didn't go to Home Depot and like run it under the different light colors. Well, you because here's that. the thing: when they've done butterscotch on a telly or that that or like a Squire, yeah, it looks right. It's, yeah. You know, and when they do that same butterscotch and and when they don't call it butterscotch, they just call it blonde or vintage blonde. It is different. And the fact that they're calling it the same, I think it is the same paint. I think it's just the way it's being executed in this particular situation. It's not... Highly suspect. It's not, like, popping right. It's like African mahogany <laughs> and regular mahogany. I think that... And normie mahogany. You guys, you, normie mahogany? Y'all ever heard of the uh, Patagonian toothfish? Yeah. Otherwise known as Chilean sea bass. The Chilean sea bass. Uh, that's, that's what we got going on here. That's dude. what's going on. And on that note, let's go get some food, dude. I'm just kidding. We did have some good tamales here. Shout out to Tam- Juan and his mom. Tamal. Yeah, that was very good. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm eager to see how those lines, both generation and acoustasonic, progress into the coming years. I'm wondering if one day with either the player port or those acoustasonics, if it'll be the kind of thing where it's like, oh, yeah, this brand did this for a couple of years and, you know, whatever. It's it kind of like a, a weird fever dream of a guitar or if they will catch. I mean, we've seen custom shops going to Jack White and stuff and they're pushing them. The marketing dollars have been insane behind these two guitars, getting in-store signage. Those animations of the acoustasonics on Fender's site have yeah. been so cool. But it makes me wonder. I think you gotta find like, literally, not just because of the name, but you gotta find like a whole generation to get behind. Like this is the, you know, we used to play these guitars back in my day, just like we were talking about earlier. Like, 
those Gibsons with the player port or those hybrid guitars from Fender. I mean, you got to catch like a whole group of people. We'll, we'll see what happens. I, you know, my uh, my eldest likes them. I think the younger demographic seems to be gravitating toward them. I think it's made with them in mind. Yeah. Um, and I think that that will be you know what eventually proves out. There's the current generation is not so much tied to uh, history. They want something that's different and fills needs. And yeah. I think that these guitars are doing that. So we'll see what we see. I think they're good guitars. They are maybe an acquired taste visually yeah. um, in some of these respects. But uh, there's no shortage of holes involved. So you know, <laughs> they've got that going for them. I like on it's two, and I think it's probably the Rider and the, the 200, mm-hmm. uh, the line inlay. Yeah. I think that's a pretty sharp look. That's one of the things that I do like about them. That is pretty, you know, that's an eye-catching thing. If you're going to get one of those four, what would be your pick? I'd go with the G45. I like the round shoulder dreadnought. Yeah. Yeah. Man, and, I'd, and I'd put a pickup in yeah. myself. I I like that G00. Yeah. But I think it, I, I'm between that and the G Rider. No, 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 that and the G200. Um, I mean, they're all, they're all nice, and they don't, they all do their body shape well, Pretty well. with the sound. You, know? you got to play one, though, Pat, because here's what's crazy. I guarantee you that th- what people are hearing from the front of that guitar is different from what you're hearing. Because it's like right there, dude. It's crazy. It's so loud. And then you listen to somebody else play, and it's like a normal thing. But Yeah. So it's really, it, it really I mean, you get a great, it's a great couch guitar. It's a great playing by yourself guitar because it, like, you're experiencing an acoustic kind of onslaught, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, what you're hearing out of there is not a really good testament to what your audience would hear. And they don't matter anyway, so who cares? Interesting. They don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> well, on the note that the audience doesn't matter, we thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast. <laughs> that is our confession uh, to the fretboard. Is it's we really the audience doesn't care what your tone wood is. Only you do. Unless it's that doesn't care how many holes dude. you have. Doesn't care about. <laughs> they don't care if you're holding a Hofner bass or a Rickenbacker bass or if you know how to adjust the bass. Yeah. They just want you to let it be. <laughs> <laughs>